This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Well, today I'm really looking forward to talking to Una Mannion, whose debut novel, A Crooked Tree, has just been published by Faber. And also Una is going to talk to us about her toaster challenge favourite. And we're looking forward to that. And Apocalypse Now. I'm going to be looking at Apocalypse, an anthology edited by James Keary, the first anthology of so-called apocalyptic or neo-romantic poetry since the 1940s, with over 200 poets and just published by Carcanet Press. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. Peter, what have you got on the table this week? Well, what I've got is Apocalypse, an anthology edited by James Keary, published by Carcanet. And it's a book I've been looking forward to for a while. I mean, I, I think I mentioned it on the podcast at the beginning of the year as one of the books that I was mm-hmm. kind of hotly anticipating. Yeah, I remember we both attended the launch of this anthology. It was really a fantastic event to attend, um, run by Carcanet. Um, but also, Peter, for those of us who didn't attend or haven't had a good time to look at the book, why is it called Apocalypse and what's so apocalyptic about it? Yeah, you know, I'll get to that. I mean, I mean, first, though, I think for me, one of the main joys of any new anthology is, you know, the fact that it draws attention to poets or poems you mightn't have heard of or you know, you might have been half aware of poets you might have seen in another context and not really appreciated. So when this arrived, I mean, before thinking, even thinking about uh, the implications of the title, I kind of just dived, I'm never sure if it's dived or dove, but anyway, I yeah. dived straight in and I just started devouring the poems. Yeah. And I mean, it opens with a poem by John Macefield. I mean, mm-hmm. when was the last time you read a poem by John Macefield? I mean, poet laureate for nearly 40 years until 1967. And this is what it starts off with. In the dark womb where I began, my mother's life made me a man. Through all the months of human birth, her beauty fed my common earth. I cannot see, nor breathe, nor stir, but through the death of some of her. And it's actually very interesting, I think, Peter, to hear that beautiful poem today, because we're actually, uh, we're speaking on Mother's Day, so it's, it's beautiful to hear that poem and to see it at the beginning of the book. And there's also poems like Mina Loy's Aviator's Eyes. Yeah, there is. I mean, I mean, which is a great poem. And there's also an astonishing to me sequence by H.D. or Hilda Doolittle. And the poem, it's, it's a war poem from RAF, a, a sequence. I'll just give you a, maybe a blast of that. He said, I'm just out of hospital, but I'm still flying. I answered, of course, angry, prescient, knowing what fire lay behind his wide stare, what fury of desire impelled him, pretending not to notice his stammer, and that now in his agony to express himself, his speech failed altogether, and his eyes seemed to gather in their white heat all the fires of the wind, fire of sleet, and on it goes. It's a really powerful piece, and it just reminds us that, you know, war is obviously, it's a big thing, um, because we're, for a lot of the time here, we're in the, the 1940s, it's wartime England. I mean, I have another one that maybe you might read for us. And I mean, it's, because um, again, it's just a great poem. I think it's Francis Cornford's Soldiers on the Platform, kind of typical of that sort of mood of, of, of the book, the wartime mood. Soldiers on the Platform by Francis Cornford. Look how these young bare bullock faces know with a simplicity like drawing breath that out of happiness we fall on woe and in the midst of life we are in death. See how in staring sameness each one stands his laden shoulders and his scoured hands but each behind his wall of flesh and bone thinks with this secret he is armed alone. 
Yeah, it's a great poem. And you might think, you know, is this an anthology of, of 40s poems? And this is where it gets maybe a bit complicated. I mean, yes, there were a lot of poems from the 40s here, poets of the Second World War, poets who got going in the 40s, as well as poets who came later, um, but who have something maybe in common with those poets. So Dylan Thomas is here, W.S. Graham, but also Ted Hughes. Ernie Larkin is here, maybe surprisingly, lots of others who've been completely forgotten. In fact, I mean, a lot of the poems have never been anthologized. But this, I suppose, is where I need to go back to the title and, you know, the whole rationale for the book. I mean, Apocalypse is a look at British and Irish poetry from the middle of the 20th century. And right at the centre of that is Dylan Thomas. Yeah, which is very interesting. And Peter, can you talk a bit about why Dylan Thomas? I mean, obviously, he's a great poet, but why is he such a central figure here? Yeah, you know, I think at this remove, it's it's quite hard for us to realise that, the, you know, the shockwaves that Dylan Thomas's early poems sent through the literary establishment of the time. I mean, as James Keery explains in his introduction, the force that threw a green fuse appeared sports journal when Thomas was a teenager and he was, it was immediately acclaimed by literary London. So Apocalypse refers to that influence and the anthology, the new Apocalypse, which came out in 1940 and had you know, Thomas and others in it. And interestingly, from an Irish perspective, it was actually Elizabeth Bowen who first used the term referring to the apocalyptic writing of Dylan Thomas. Oh, right. So that's that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so that's that strand of what is, there's also that strand of what's been called neo-romantic poetry, poetry in reaction against the Auden tradition, if you like, rejecting irony or direct statement or a certain kind of logic or cerebration even. I mean, that rejection is probably best expressed by David Gascoigne, who would be your classic neo-romantic or apocalyptic poet, and Kiri quotes him. I feel the existence of a great gap between their generation's conception of poetry and my own. Poetry is not rhetoric, nor is it argument or reportage. The tradition of modern English poetry is quite different from the tradition of Hölderlin, Rimbaud, Rilke, Lorca, Jouve. I belong to Europe before I belong to England. And that was so interesting to hear. And also Kiri quotes Rosemary Tonks, where she says, I've developed a visionary modern lyric and for it, an idiom in which I can write lyrically, colloquially and dramatically about city life. It's anguish, it's enraged excitement, it's great lonely joys. Yeah, and you know, actually, because one, one of the things that's interesting in, in the introduction is the way that James Kiri he sort of relates this to, to European poetry and he, he relates it to people like, you know, Georg Krakel, Jaroslav Seifert, Paul Celan, I mean, Todesfuga or Deathfug, you know, is an apocalyptic poem if, if ever there was one. But going back to that seminal Dylan Thomas poem, Kiri said that, you know, it'd be, it'd be possible to do an anthology of just cover versions of that poem alone. And it's also, it's kind of funny how Poets you think would have no link to this tradition. I mean, I mean, a poet like Roy Fisher, for instance, describes the effect that reading Dylan Thomas had on him. It was like one of those astronomical events where a body is struck by another and kicked out of its familiar orbit into a new one by way of a violent wobble. I came across the burning baby, then read along with the along with the gang of surrealist and neo-romantic things I was hunting out the first two collections of poems on the map of love. It was simply the spectacle of something apparently quite primal, a sort of linguistic, imaginative magma, unsuspected innards, the breaking of taboos one hadn't known existed. It is interesting, but 
don't do you think Peter a lot of people maybe they reject this sort of poetry this so-called new romantics maybe they think that it's sort of grandiose or rhetorical what do you think about that yeah well I think that's actually one of the reasons that we haven't heard so much about a lot of these poets because people are exactly quite sniffy about poets from the 40s or they take their bearings from the likes of the movement's rejection of them, you know, Larkin and all those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but of course, poetry is a lot more than the, the, the movement. is a lot more complicated than that. And there's, a whole, there's never any one single line of inheritance or any one single tradition. So, I mean, it's also true that a lot of the poems share a kind of high style with a rhetorical flourish, if you like, that is poetry at a high temperature with maybe a, a visionary pulse following a line maybe from... Blake through Shelley, the high modernism of Eliot. I mean, all that is there in the mix. So it sounds like it's an anthology of a lot of different things. Is that right, Peter? And I suppose, I mean, you could say in a way, this is an anthology of a sensibility or of a lofty kind of aspiration. And obviously that doesn't appeal to everyone. I mean, as Curie himself acknowledges, uh, there's not a lot of humour in it. And he he also quotes the, the redoubtable Michael Hoffman, um, giving out about exactly the kind of poets that he has put in his anthology. So here's Hoffman introducing W.S. Graham to American readers in 2018. So he says, The 1940s and 50s strike me as two rank bad decades for poetry. It was the time of the awful British New Romantics, but really almost everything and everyone was awful then. And as Kiri says, well, the great majority of those awful British New Romantic poets are are within, so maybe that's a kind of interesting because at least, you know, we can we can judge for ourselves. We can we can read the poems for ourselves and decide whether they're awful or not. The poem or the book rather gives us the chance to read, uh, you know, a huge swathe of that work. Never pulls the sponges, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't pull the sponges. Wow. Um, anyway, Peter. So so you said that one of the things the book did was to show the work of unfamiliar poets or poems. You have loads of examples of that, don't you? So can we can we have a listen or a read of some of those? Yeah, well, sure. I mean, those an exa- well, one example would be maybe a poet like Elizabeth Dariush, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name properly, but um, Invalid Dawn. I found that really impressive. Do you want to read it maybe? Yeah, it's a poem that I also really like. So yeah, I'd love to read it. So here's Invalid Dawn by Elizabeth Dariush. And actually, she's a poet who crossed two centuries. She was born in 1887 and she died in 1997. Invalid Dawn. Above the grey down, gather one the glows. Relieved by leaden, gleams a star gang goes. In the dark valley, here and there enters a spark, laggardly to the faint watchers that were there all night. Factory, station and hospital light. Tired of lamp, star, sun, bound to my straight bed uncurtained, I see heaven itself, law-led, earth in slavery. Yeah, great. And, I mean, just to follow that, I mean, here's another, I mean, a slightly different kind of poem. And, you know, it shows maybe where some of the title kind of, or the rationale for some of the kind of, title comes from. And this is by Robert Herring, called, and it's called Crystal Palace, and built to herald free trade, progress, peace, a structure with a life as short as these, from whose last ruins in 1936 rise the first flames of the apocalypse. Oh, there's that word again, Peter, apocalypse. Well, it's just that sense of political apocalypse, impending disaster and the threat of another war. And then you have, you know, like a superb war poem by Sardy MacLean, translated from his own uh, Gaelic, Black Awash, um, Death Valley in, in English. Um, 
a poem where he sees the body of a, de- of a dead German soldier in the North African desert. I mean, there's a good actually representation of Scottish poets, I have to say. I mean, Burns Singer is extraordinary, Magnificat. There's early Norm- Norman McCaig in a quite tangled Yeatsian mode that he would later discard. And there's people like Robert Garriott, George Mackay Brown. There are also Welsh poets like Alan Lewis, who died in Burma during the fight against the Japanese, Keith Reese and Lynette Roberts, um, who was married to Reese, but whose poem that you might read actually is an invitation to Alan Lewis to visit her. Yeah, I'd love to read this uh, poem from Clanny Bree by Lynette Roberts, and she died in 1995. If you come my way, that is, between now and then, I will offer you a fistful of rockcress fresh from the bank, the valley tips of garlic red with dew, cooler than shallots, a breath you can swank in the village when you come. At noonday, I will offer you a choice bowl of coal served with a lover's spoon and a chopped spray of leeks or savoury fack not used now in the old way you'll understand. The din of children singing through the islet sheds, ringing smith hoops, chasing the butt of hens. And it goes on and on. I think that sounds that sounds like a really good offering if somebody's coming to visit, doesn't it, Peter? Yeah, and I think that's one of the, again, to go back to what I said earlier, it's like, that's one of the joys of it is, is that, you know, coming across poets like that and there's others. I mean, you know, people uh, might get excited by Frida Lawton or Sheila Legg or Gloria Kamai. The people who are effectively rescued from Oblivion is a great poem by Frida Lawton on, on evacuees. There's another one um, I liked a lot by Philip O'Connor called The Baby. Maybe I'll just give you a, a quick blast of that. The baby should have oranges, which would run through him nourishingly he would then make more noise. We would wash him. He would shine like silver yeah. spoons. I love that line. He would shine like silver spoons. And of course, the baby is living in impoverished London. Um, the chances of him getting oranges are, are probably very little. So I really like this poem, the way it, it gives you a sense of London of that time as well. But there's also, I mean, you know, there's very different kind of work as well. I mean, there's that extraordinary, um, passionate response of the Jewish poet Emmanuel Litvinov from the East End of London to the anti-Semitism of T.S. Eliot in his poem to T.S. Eliot. And he was kind of affronted by the fact that, you know, Eliot is still publishing in his selected poems um, kind of slurs against against Jews, references to, to kind of, you know, furs and Bleistein and all that kind of stuff, money and furs and, and the protozoic slime of Bleistein's lusterless kind of protrusive eyes and so on. So he, he read that poem. It's an extraordinary poem. He, and he read it uh, at, at a public event, in fact, and it was the Insti- at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in 1951. And the host of the event was Herbert Reed. Mm. And he said, um, as he was about to read it, he said, oh God, Tom's just come in, meaning Elliot has just entered the room and seeing him. And, you know, he was kind of nervous. But despite that, he read, he thought this, this poem has to be read. And he proceeded to, to recite it to the packed, but totally silent room. So shall I say it is not eminence chills with the snigger from behind the covers of history, the sly words and the cold heart and footprints made of blood upon a continent. Let your words tread lightly on this earth of Europe, lest my people's bones protest. And there was kind of a bit of pandemonium after it. And Eliot is supposed to have said, well, you know, it's a good poem. It's a very good poem. So, I mean, that gives it maybe some idea of just the range of poems that's represented in the yeah, and I suppose we're here in, in Dublin recording our podcast, so it has to be said that there's lots of Irish poets too. Some well-known Irish poets, but others I wasn't actually really aware of. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, like some people, we do know. I mean, Patrick Carvin is there. I mean, the likes of Shank Duff and Raglan Road and Epic and, you know, the uh, a kind of apop- apocalyptic few lines from Patrick Maguire in The Great Hunger. But Anthony Cronin is there with a poem set in London. Actually, it's quite a striking poem. Dennis Devlin, Patrick McDonough, Donna McDonough, kind of slightly forgotten figures really now. Eugene Waters or... Ono Tourish, because we also know him in Irish, W.R. Rogers, but also people who have slipped beneath the radar. Yeah, and a poet like Blonnet Salkeld would be a case in point. Ethna McCarthy, Sheila Wingfield. I mean, Blonnet Salkeld is interesting. I mean, like she was an Abbey actress. Her, I mean, she's often known only because her granddaughter Beatrice married Brendan Behan. Um, but she kept a literary salon in Dublin, attended by the likes of Kavanagh, Flann O'Brien, Kate O'Brien, Michael McLeamore. And she was also a publisher. And in fact, she gave her hand press to Liam and Josephine uh, Miller and it, they used it to found the Dolman Press. Yeah, very interesting. Peter, if you had to pick one poem to finish with that would sum the whole book up in some way, I know this is a hard question, but what would it be? Yeah, it is a hard question because there, there are so many. And again, it's because it's, you know, it's a very various kind of anthology. Yeah, but for me, it would have to be done with something like W.S. Graham, who, who sums up the spirit of it to me, and maybe a poem like Listen, Put on Morning. I suppose just because I've always loved it, but also maybe because for all that it has in common with the mood, and if you like the rhetorical gesture of many of the pieces in this anthology, it also has a great clarity and that kind of lovely, tight, rhythmic articulation. Yeah, it's a really beautiful poem. I have an idea, Peter. Let's just share the reading of this because I think I'm a bit jealous. I love it so much. I'd love to read some of it too. So will you you start off on W.S. Graham's wonderful poem, Listen, Put on Morning. Listen, put on morning. Waken into falling light. A man's imagining suddenly may inherit the hand-clapping centuries of his one minute on earth. And hear the virgin juries talk with his own breath to the corner boys of his street. And hear the Black Mariah searching the town at night, and hear the play ropes ca, the Sister Mary in, and hear Willie and Davy among bracken of Narnane sing in a mist heavy with myrtle and listeners. And hear the higher town weep a petition of fears at the poorhouse close upon the public heartbeat, and hear the children tig and run with my own feet into the netting drag of a suiciding principle. Listen. Put on light break, waken into miracle. The audience lies awake under the tenements, under the sugar docks, under the printed moments. The centuries turn their locks and open under the hill their inherited books and doors, all gathered to distill like happy berry pickers, one voice to talk to us. Yes, listen. It carries away the second and the years till the hearts in a jacket of snow and the heads in a helmet of white and the song sleeps to be wakened by the morning ear bright. Listen, put on morning, waken into falling light. That was Apocalypse, an anthology edited by James Geary, published by Carcanet, and details as usual on our website www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. Mannion was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and throughout her childhood, she and her siblings spent summers visiting County Sligo, where their father was born. In the 1990s, Una settled there. 
For over 20 years, she's taught at the Institute of Technology Sligo. In 2014, Una joined the Sandyfield Writers Group and has been writing ever since. Una has won numerous prizes for her short fiction and poetry, including the Hennessy New Irish Writing Poetry Award, the Courch International Short Fiction Award, Doolan Short Story Prize, Ambit Fiction Award, Allingham Short Fiction Prize, among others. Her work has been published in numerous journals such as Cranog, The Lonely Crowd, Bear Fiction, and her stories have been included in recent collections Galway Stories 2020, edited by Lisa Frank and Alan McMonagle, which came out in 2020, and The Art of the Glimpse, a hundred Irish short stories edited by Sinead Gleeson, which came out in autumn 2020. Along with writers Louise Kennedy and Owen McNamee, Una also edits The Cormorant, a broadsheet of poetry and prose. She curates The Word, a monthly author series hosted by Sligo Central Library and the BA Writing and Literature at IT Sligo. And recently she completed an MA in writing from NUI Galway and is Programme Chair of the new BA in Writing and Literature at IT Sligo. She's a very busy writer. She lives in Sligo with her husband and three children. And this morning Una's here to talk about her wonderful debut novel, A Crooked Tree, published by Faber in the UK and HarperCollins in the States. It's a novel set in Pennsylvania in the early 1980s and it's a dark, suspenseful, coming-of-age novel which highlights the extraordinary resilience of a young family coping with dysfunction, grief and too much responsibility. So Una Mannion, you are very welcome to Books for Breakfast this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Well, Luna, your your novel opens with a mother's moment of rage, which has, I think it's fair to say, unintended but terrible consequences. And I just thought it would be nice to lead the readers into this moment of rage. Um, it's a pivotal moment at the beginning of the book. So what about, it would be nice to hear you, Unis, just start there where your very atmospheric novel begins. Okay, so I'm going to start. Um, They're driving home and there's five kids in the car and the mother's driving and they're they're fighting and the mother's getting frustrated. The car skidded into the shoulder, right where 252 crossed the turnpike. Out. Get out. My mom said it with her voice low, which let us know she meant it. Ellen reached across Thomas, opened the back door and started to climb out. You can't leave her here, Marie said. She started to gather her bag from the floor of the front. Ellen was standing on the gravel verge of the overpass in her school pinafore, tennis shirt, and knee socks. Marie was opening her door when my mother threw the car into gear and accelerated forward. I looked back. Ellen was facing away from us, looking down over the bridge while columns of cars funneled along the turnpike. Mom, don't, please, Thomas said, but she didn't answer. We sped up 252 into the National Park and then turned west toward Valley Forge Mountain. Ahead of us, the sun had fallen below the fields. We were still five or six miles from home. I hadn't said anything to make my mother stop. We careened down the road, went through the covered bridge, past farmland and fences. Beside us, the shadows of dogwoods blurred in the dark as my mother kept driving. Each tree hemmed in a halo of white where the bracks had fallen. Oh, thank you. And I wanted you to keep going there. So thanks for that. A mother drives off with her family, leaving her 12-year-old daughter, Ellen, on the side of the road. And they're five miles from home. The dark is closing in all around them. So what will happen next? Um, I began to imagine all kinds of horrors. And I was really actually surprised by the way this story went. And I was wondering, 
Did it surprise you too as a writer, the direction the novel took? Or was this a story that you had carefully planned out before you began? Uh, no, I think <laughs> I, I think I was surprised repeatedly. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that I'm someone who's good at plotting. And I think I was probably writing scene to scene quite a bit. Um, I, I had that opening moment as a catalyst for, for telling a story. And I, and I knew I wanted to tell a story about that kind of ferocity of sibling relationships and teen female friendship mm-hmm. um, and the kind of code of secrecy um, that children keep and how they protect one another and sometimes shoulder the responsibility of parents. But I didn't know exactly what would happen. And so, you know, even characters arrived that hung around yeah. you know for the duration of, of the novel yeah I like that idea that you were discovering yourself as you it was a journey for you as well which is brilliant and um, the Gallagher family I really love them they're such a distinct bunch of of people they're all individuals in their own way with their own interests and passions and central to the the book is the character of Libby she's a wonderful creation the 15 year old she's a complex narrator she's I found her very naive and knowing all at once and she was vulnerable as well but I was just wondering growing up in a large Irish American family yourself in Philadelphia did you get a lot of inspiration from your own siblings to write this novel? No, definitely. Mm-hmm. I guess too. So I'm I'm number six in my family, so I'm not a middle child. I'm towards the bottom of the pack. There's a few younger than me, so I come from a quite large family. Um, but my I I have an older sister who um in the late seventies, early eighties, you know, was a punk rocker and went and lived in Berlin and hung out with you know Nick Cave and whoever was there at the time and lived with Henry. Henry Rollins in, in, um, not as friends, she lived in the house with Henry Rollins from Black Flag. And so there was this kind of, um, you know, I, I had her, I suppose, channeled her a little bit into Marie and that kind of feisty way of looking at the world. Um, whereas Libby's much more, uh, of a warrior and, uh, reactionary to the world. Marie sort of strides into it. Um, and I, I suppose maybe Marie more than any of the other siblings, but I think that certainly the relationships between siblings. Um, my, one of my best friends and I have this conversation a lot. She's one of 11 children from Kimmage in Dublin. And we talk about like how our husbands like live in normal families where they're all autonomous adults, but like we're from packs, you know, and you don't have that kind of, you know, autonomy. You're always part of something. And so I, I think the book is a little bit about the loss of that, you know, that that time in your life when you can't separate your skin from your sisters, you know, that and the loss, the inevitable loss of of, of that safety. Yeah, because I grew up in a family of five as well. And I just really connected with the book. I was the middle child and I, I could connect with the older brother and sister as well. It's, it's, it's fantastically drawn there. There's a great sense of place and time in the novel as well. There's the physical place of Valley Forge Mountain with its woods, its trails, its quarries. And of course, we can't forget the kingdom, the secret hiding spot in the woods that Libby and Sage love to hide away in. And added to this sense of place, there's a powerful sense of the period 
heritage of the early 1980s, the clothes, the music, the food. And it's a place and time that you as a writer, you you know so well. And that was an inspiration too, was it, Una? Una? And I also read somewhere that you said uh, that Stranger Things, the Netflix drama, <laughs> that inspired you to write about that freedom. I remember it so well myself as well of growing up in that time. So you just talk a little bit about that, about how it inspired you. Yeah, so I, I was I, I watched Stranger Things actually with my kids. I think I may have already ha- have written a good bit of the manuscript, but but what struck me was that my kids were like this. They didn't question the paranormal stuff or the upside down. They were like, "Where are the parents?" <laughs> you know that. So the, for them, that absentee parenting just didn't seem real to them. Um, and I think you know there was so much about that freedom that we had and you know, to wander into danger and all of those things um, in, in that time. And I think that the early, the late 70s, early 80s is historically is an interesting time in America. You know, so Reagan had just become president. And I always feel like that there was just the end of this lost idealism um, of the 60s and, and all the political violence of the 70s. And even like the thing of serial killers and the sense of threat and this new conservatism and Margaret Thatcher just become prime minister maybe in 79. And it was just a different, um, I always think it's kind of a lost, a loss of innocence or something at that time. And, um, and also where I was, where I was living, um, there was like the, the King of Prussia mall that gets mentioned was, had, it would have him called the plaza and it just become expanded into the largest shopping mall in the world. You know, this kind of like consumerist, sprawl you know to the, to the east and i think that idea of valley forge mountain being on the cusp between like the this pastoral west and the, the developing east and the nuclear plant that was built at the bottom of the mountain that we could see the cooling towers rise you know in those years um and so there was i suppose the the time and the place you know that the woods were right at the the Valley Forge Mountain is is kind of a preserve, and the Horseshoe Trail um, literally runs straight across Valley Forge Mountain. And I grew up there, and so I think initially I tried to scrub reference from the from the text, and then I was just thinking this place is actually so perfect. You know, the Nike site with the nuclear the nuclear the anti missile missiles is actually there, um, and I think it speaks so much to that time. Yeah, and I think that was such a great decision to say, no, I know this place so well, and that's where I'm going to center it. It, it's, it really comes across your knowledge of the place. Um, and it's a novel, as you said earlier, about secrets too. What adults hide from children, what children hide from adults, what children hide from each other as well, from their siblings and their friends. And Libby, I think it's really interesting because she often knows information that she keeps hidden, but then she reveals it sometimes from time to time. And then she feels guilty because, you know, she might have hurt the people she loves, the woman she babysits for, or Sage, her best friend or her mother. So secrets, they, they really intrigue you, don't they, Una, as a writer? Yeah, I think I think um, part of like Libby's dilemma is like she's like there's all these secrets and she's she gets it but doesn't really get it. And hmm. so she's too immature, I think, maybe to really see the picture of her mother's life and her mother's pain, you know, and, and hopefully she arrives there a little bit more by the, by the end of the book. Yeah. But I do think um, there's, and hopefully it feels psychologically real that, you know, there's a lot of that, that sec- the secrets we keep to protect other people 
And she shared some of those secrets with her best friend and then resents her for knowing too much about the family or knowing about the father and the past. Yeah. You know, when she's compensating for that, overcompensating for that. And so I think we're all kind of, you know, we're always that, like what we disclose, don't disclose our self-loathing for what we do disclose. And, yeah. um, and this, I suppose, like the mother's boyfriend in this whole kind of world that's just shadowy and she she understands but but not fully yeah um, yeah yeah it's very interesting and then also there's absences and presences in the book and I was really um I really like the idea that Ireland is present in the novel as well and um you know I know as a child you travel to Sligo on your holidays from America but there's that kind of yearning for it isn't there um especially when uh, Libby smells the suitcases and she says when the suitcases came back from the trip to Ireland we'd put our heads inside and breathe in the smell of over there peat fires clothes wind dried and sea air freshly turned haze so can you talk a little bit about that about the influence of Ireland um yeah I I suppose um you know as well as maybe you know being influenced by the sibling relationships um, my father was was Irish and an immigrant in America I suppose who never really settled in America um, he did try to come back to Ireland. You know, he just was always in between. He never owned property in America or he was very restless mm-hmm. and moved a lot. And, um, and I think the pain of that and maybe his nostalgia for home in this place he couldn't get back to, um, was like, a, was painful for me to see. Mm-hmm. And I think I understood it as a child. I kind of, I, I saw something lost in him. And I think yeah. it influenced me and all of my siblings quite deeply, um, seeing my father's yen for something that he couldn't get. And so I think that the, the presence of Ireland, I, I, you know, I don't want to romanticize Ireland, you know, cause I, I feel like I fall into maybe a trap of being American and, and looking mm-hmm. across. Um, and, but for me, it was an experience that was very real in our house and it wasn't a, a romantic, like, you know, twee version of Ireland. It was, it was, um, I think, you know, seeing someone a bit, a bit lost for home. And, um, that, I think that was a huge influence in, in the book for me. Yeah. And also that there is a strong yearning too for the dead father in the book. Um, Thomas says at one part to Libby, I wish I could tell him stuff. And Libby says, what stuff? And Thomas says, I wish I could tell him he was a good father. I don't think he knew. So that yearning for the lost father as well is, is very present in the book, even though he's absent. So it's a great balance there, Una. Um, Sligo. I want to ask you about Sligo as well. I know you're based there and it's got such a fine tradition of writers from Yeats right through to, I'm thinking of Dermot Healy, who settled there, Leland Bardwell, the poet. And I know you've received great support from writers like Oon McNamee, Alice Lyons, the Sandyfield Writers Group that we spoke about earlier. You're, you're so active. You're also Programme Chair of the new BA in writing literature at IT Sligo. Was coming to Sligo in the 1990s really important to you in your development as a writer? Definitely. Uh, I worked on force. I came to Sligo and I didn't know anybody and I met Dermot Healy. Um, um, and ended up working on Force 10. So I worked on the first issues of Force 10. And we did these um, spoken word interviews. Um, we didn't have tape records or anything. Dermot would send us out. You know, you'd interview someone with a you know, notepad and pen and try and capture the, the voice. And I think 
in the editing of that, um, I found something I really loved, and you know, where where you're trying to capture the voice, I and I, but it took me a long time to ever try to write myself. I mean, I didn't write until my late forties, right. but um, but but definitely coming to Sligo and and that whole culture around Force Ten, um, and being introduced to people and yeah. Um, you know, Molly McCluskey was here and Jean Valentine and Leland Bardwell started the, um, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the name of the festival, Scree. That's right, yeah. You know, they brought everyone from Adrian Rich was here to, you know, all kinds of writers. And, um, so it was very, all through the 90s, it was really like a really vibrant place to be. Um, Yeah, I remember that period so well. I remember going down and um, I think Miroslav Holub had gone to read there. And um, I remember like Dermot, she was so great. Um, I think actually I had some poems in Force 10 as well. It really was Force 10 down there, wasn't it? With the wind blowing and everything. But yeah, what a brilliant um, writing culture to to come into. Um, we spoke earlier of the fierce loyalty the Gallagher children have for their father. He did odd jobs. He cut grass to survive. And uh, I think it would be really lovely now to hear you read another piece. It's um, where Marie and Thomas and Libby, the narrator, all go along to help their dad. He's clearing out the house of a lady who kept cats and it's really brilliantly described. So I'd love to hear it, Una. Okay, right. Um, so, yeah, so the, um, I remembered a day at the Cat Ladies when we were working with my dad. She lived in, alone in an old Victorian-style house with at least 40 cats. My dad had looked after her garden for over 15 years, since before I was born. She'd been trying to sell the house for a long time, and a few summers ago it had finally sold, even with all the cats hanging around, lying on counters and sitting in sinks. When she was moving, she hired my father to do some work inside, pulling up carpets and taking old furniture to the dump. Marie, Thomas and I all went to help with the job. It was late July and hot, well into the 90s. We'd peeked through her windows before to look at the cats that had never been inside. The heat and stench were stifling. The ammonia from the cat pee burned our eyes. We choked and air squeezed out of my lungs. It was a three-story house and the cats had been everywhere. To make it worse, she turned off the air conditioning. The mean bitch, Marie muttered. We started on the third floor where it was hottest and tried to pull out the small carpet nails at the edges. Dad told us to go back to the truck and get gloves. The fumes were in my mouth and throat. When we rolled up the first carpet, which was damp, the floorboards were rotten underneath. Get out of the house and wash your hands and faces at the spigot. Get the soap in the truck, Dad told us. Thomas, you stay with me. He said the odor would never come out. The new owners would have to take up the floorboards. Marie and I sat outside for hours, saying very little, while Dad and Thomas finished the work alone, carrying rolled up rotten carpets and heaving them into the back of the truck. Thomas worked intently, staggering under the weight and smell, never wanting to let my father down. He was 14. I sat on the curb with Marie and looked over at the garden that my father had planted for the cat lady years earlier. That year's tomatoes were ripe and red on their vines against her deck. Dad had cane supporting them with soft strings so as not to damage the tender stalks. The cat lady had a Venus de Milo statue in the garden, a naked woman about as high as my hip with missing arms. Marie walked over and kicked her to the ground and came back and sat next to me on the curb. Her face was dirty and streaked. Fucking people think they know something about culture, she said. 
Wow, thank you so much. That was Una Mannion reading from her debut novel, A Crooked Tree, just published by Faber. And now, Una, thank you. It was great to talk to you. It's time now for the Toaster Challenge, where we're going to give you maybe two, two and a half minutes to talk about a book that really means something special to you. So we're looking forward to it. And I'm going to count you in now. Peter's going to get the bread ready. Um, One, two, three, and off you go. So I'm going to talk about Louise Kennedy's forthcoming collection of short stories, The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac. There are 15 stories in the collection, and they're set largely in the northwest of Ireland, and this landscape is integral to the stories. There's fairy forts, holy wells, wishing trees, grottos, um, titles that evoke religious or pagan festivals like Imbolc and the final story, Garland Sunday. But there's also ghost estates, um, a farm that's a front for a grow house, and Desperation, I think, through all the stories. Kennedy's characters are financially ruined or never got a start. They're drug dealers, adulterers, healers, people trying to live off the grid, parenting alone, predatory men, a mother struggling with mental illness. I'm almost inclined to say that this is black pastoral. The story's gritty realism refused our impulse to read the West of Ireland mystically. And yet there's insistent compassion in all the stories. The very first line of the book um, captures the sensibility of the collection. Um, it's from the title story. Um, it opens, the dereliction was almost beautiful. And in that story, um, the protagonist, Sarah, is living in the show house on a ghost estate. Um, and over the course of the story, um, the, the ghost estate was developed by her husband, um, who basically ran it into the ground and then absconded. And over the course of the story, um, she meets his coke dealer and she ends up sort of exchanging um, sex for lines of coke and a dinner. Um, and the details in the story, you know, we see the kind of fallout of the Celtic tiger. There's like, you know, high gloss kitchen units and solid walnut counters. Um, but the fridge is empty and she has no credit um, to, to um, I suppose, to buy anything else. Um, and then there's a, this, the pull of the land or the force of the land in the stories. The state is called Hawthorne Close. It's alleged to have been built on a fairy fort, and there's suggestions that there's bad luck in this. Um, in another story, hunter-gatherers, the, a couple are living in the gatehouse of a country estate. Um, and there's so much that's unsettling in this story, I can't even tell you. Um, the, the gamekeeper comes in his truck, or his jeep to collect um, the, the woman's husband partner, and he brings um, his girlfriend's fourteen-year-old daughter. And over the course of the story, he's plied her with drink and teaches her how to shoot something that's really beautiful. Um, the narrative trajectories are often grim, but they're also uplifting. Um, and I think this has to do with uh, Kennedy's style. The stories just hum in detail. The prose leaps off the page. It's sharp, incisive, and there's something about the irony and humor of the authorial voice that creates a tension in the story that doesn't let them spiral into despair. And Hands, which is a story about a, this young man who's a healer but can't save his own sick son, um, were brought to a holy well um, and to a wishing tree with all the wishes strewn through it, you know, from soothers to, to whatever. Um, the tree chinkled with the desperate tat that hung from it. Um, Kennedy's writing is spare and unadorned, but so, so accurate in capturing like both humanity and pathos. 
Um, the stories are beautiful and utterly human and compassionate. And that's, I hope I made the toaster challenge time. So. <laughs> you definitely have, Una. And what, oh, what an endorsement of that book. I haven't read it yet. I know it's out on April the 1st. It's published by Bloomsbury. Isn't that yeah, right, Una? That, um, I think that's kind of a picture of the cover. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, it's lovely to see it. It's so lovely. Yeah, I just can't wait to read those those stories. I, I know that Nick Laird said that they're remarkable. Sinead Gleeson said that they sing, haunt and inspire laughter, which is a great thing as well, isn't it's it? It's very, very And she's funny. saying it's one... Yeah, she says it's one of the best collections I've read in years, so I can't wait. So that's great, Una. Peter, the toast is in good shape there, isn't it? That's great. That's brilliant. <laughs> so we're delighted that Una Mannion came in today to talk about A Crooked Tree. I'll repeat again, published by Faber. If you haven't got a copy, please do, because it's absolutely wonderful. And also we're looking forward to Louise Candy's The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac, published by Bloomsbury, out April the 1st. And as usual, all details of these books will be available on our website website www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com and again Una Mannion thank you so much for coming in thank, thank you, you very much we I think we've reached the end of our books for breakfast podcast this morning I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee and I'm Enda Wiley and I've Peter Sarah here with me and Peter would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so. We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.